Amen. And that's what we're studying. That's what we're going to focus our attention upon this morning. That's what we're going to be focusing our attention upon over the next period of time. I'll talk a little bit about that in just a moment. But let's begin again. Not begin again. Let's continue, shall we? With a word of prayer. Father, I want to thank you for the grace that you bestow upon us. I thank you that though the world in darkness lay, though men love darkness rather than light, for our deeds are evil, though our sins had separated between us and our God, and though we were dead in our trespasses and sin, all of us like stubborn sheep heading in our own direction, you came. You broke through time and history. You came to be uniquely human and uniquely God, fully human as we are, and yet fully God. You came and you lived a human life righteously, perfectly fulfilling all of the law and all of the commandments. You came and became our substitute and our sacrifice. The penalty that we deserve, you took, that we might have life, that we might be forgiven, cleansed, and washed. And I pray this morning, Father, as we spend time looking at John's description of the Christmas event, the incarnation of Christ, that you'll give us new eyes, fresh eyes, to see the Lord Jesus Christ. And that in seeing him, we'll be drawn to him. And that if we already know him intimately, personally, that you will deepen our walk and our relationship and our trust and our confidence in you. These things I pray in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. I hope you had a good Christmas. We did. I'm guessing probably six, seven pounds worth of Christmas. Not only good food, but good family, good friends, good fellowship. And Christmas is past, but it was an enjoyable time. Leading up to Christmas, we looked at the prophecies that had promised Jesus' coming. Uh, we looked at the testimony of Mary, Jesus' mother. And we looked at the testimony of Joseph, the, the man who raised Jesus. And uh, we even looked at the announcement of the shepherds outside of Bethlehem. And then, of course, last week, while Suzanne and I were gone visiting family, uh, we were worshiping with you, by the way, on the screen. But Parks came and he shared with us about the living and continually active grace of God that not only saves us, but trains us as we continue to be conformed to the image of his son by renouncing worldly passions and living self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. This week, we start a new series. There are a few things that are unique about this series. Number one, it lasts all year long. Isn't that fun? Y'all are just kind of sitting there. We'll see if we can't get things stirred up a little bit. It lasts all year long. Does that seem like a long time to have one series, one focus, one, one attention? I'll tell you, it's really not. Uh, there are only 52 weeks in a year. And when you take out... The uh, number of times that we'll be doing something different because of scheduling and other emphases, that brings it down to about 45, 46 Sundays that we'll be focused on this topic. The amount of time that we spend in this room is roughly, the teaching and preaching part of it is somewhere between 30 and 50 minutes. And so it's less than an hour, and so it's Really, less than 45, 46 hours that we will spend together looking at this specific subject and topic. That's a little bit more than a work week. For some of us, or for some of us, it's less, I mean, significantly less than a work week. And so it's not a lot of time, but I, I want to introduce the topic, and then I want to 
get your involvement. First of all, our whole focus is going to be on the person of Jesus Christ. What does incarnation mean? The word becoming flesh. You guys know what uh, carne is? Like chili con carne? And carne asada? And meat. It's flesh. And when we talk about the incarnation, we're talking about the eternal God taking on flesh, taking on a body, becoming fully human. So when we talk about the incarnation, we're talking about from conception in Mary's womb all the way to the cross, the burial, and the ascension. We're talking about the time that God invaded earth where you could see him and hear him, eat with him, listen to him, fellowship with him, physically embrace him. We're talking about a very narrow window of the expression of God, of the God of eternity. And yet it is so essential and so important that we get a, a, a glimpse, a knowledge, an understanding of Jesus and of God as Jesus has revealed himself as God. And so this is our focus for the entire year, but we're not going to be able to cover it adequately simply in our time together. So we have changed our daily Bible reading, which I'll just call the DBR, daily Bible reading, for this year. Rather than going from Genesis to Revelation, or rather than from just taking the New Testament, we're just going to read four books of the Bible, but we're going to read them four times, and we're going to read them in two ways. And so we begin this week by reading Matthew. And we'll read almost all the way through the book of Matthew this week, and then we'll jump right into Mark uh, this month. And then we'll jump right into Mark in February. And you'll see as we go, we'll just read the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, the next quarter, April, we begin, and we'll start reading selections from them because the arrangement will be, to the best of our ability and knowledge, to arrange them the chronological order of his life, from his birth to his childhood, to the beginning of his ministry, and moving through that. And so we will look at, at that account chronologically, and then the second half of the year we'll repeat that again. Would you do that with me? Wouldn't that be a fun thing for us to do together? Yeah, nod better. Yes. All right. This will be a great thing for us together to, to read and study. Now, some of you are going to say, oh, I know the Gospels. I mean, we just went through Matthew 1 and 2. If you were here over Christmas, well, you've already covered the first two chapters that, we, that we're starting with now. And I want you to recognize that you can be familiar with a person and you can be familiar with a, a portion of Scripture or a piece of Scripture or a book of Scripture. And yet every time you go back, you see something new and you learn something new. My dad, great, good and godly man. I knew him well. I thought I knew him very well. I went to his funeral and learned things about him I never knew. I've been married to Suzanne 38 and a half years. Is she in here? I want to be careful what I say. No, she's in the nursery. <laughs> Thank you, Father. <laughs> I, uh, I've been married to Suzanne 38 and a half years, and I, I will tell you that I feel like I know her well. But I'll also tell you that I learn new stuff about her all the time. As a matter of fact, some of the things that I'm just learning I should have known earlier had I been paying better attention. You ever been there? That's the way it is with the Lord Jesus Christ. The more we read, the more we study, the more time we spend with him, the more we learn along with him. And so I want to talk about our daily Bible reading really quick. This is kind of in way of announcement, but it's important because if you have, we have daily Bible reading guides out there on the platform. They're on the website. As a matter of fact, you're going to have to try hard not to see them, to be exposed to them. They're going to be everywhere that you go, and we're going to talk about them frequently. 
because I want us to engage in this together. And so starting January the 1st was Matthew chapter 1, starting January 2nd, Matthew 2, 3rd, Matthew 3. But I want to encourage you to start this study a different way. I want you to, this week, commit to reading simply the first four chapters of Matthew. Now, it'll take you about 15 to 18 minutes, if you're an average reader, to read that amount of Scripture. It's just four chapters. It only takes a few moments to be able to sit there and read it. Actually, it may take considerably less, but if you listen to it on a Bible app, then it takes about 15 minutes to listen to it. And what you'll see is some of what we've already covered, the genealogy of Jesus and uh, how Joseph learns of Mary's pregnancy and how the angel speaks to him and then God speaks to him. You'll see in chapter 2, of course, King Herod and the Magi as they come in and then the flight to Egypt. The tie-in that Matthew does so closely and clearly to the prophecies of the Old Testament being fulfilled. Then you get to chapter 3 and you see Jesus' baptism. John comes out of the wilderness and Jesus' baptism. And then in chapter 4, Jesus goes into the wilderness and Satan's there and comes to him and tempts him. And Jesus begins his earthly ministry. And so in Matthew 1 through 4, you have a a cohesive section with segments, but a cohesive section that deals with the life of Christ up until the time that his ministry inaugurates. And then in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we have the longest single sermon recorded in the New Testament that Jesus preached. It's commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount. And I would encourage you to sit down and read that all at one time. Rather than on the fifth read, we're past the fifth. On one day, read chapter five. and one day, read chapter six. and one day, read chapter seven. As much as you'd like to, you don't listen to my sermons a small segment at a time. We tend to listen to them as they are delivered. I would encourage you to read it as it was delivered. All of a piece, one sermon. And while you're reading it, to read it thoughtfully. Don't rush, but think about who the listeners were. Think about who is teaching and what he has to say. And ask yourself continually the question as you go through the Gospel of Matthew. Ask yourself continually the question, what am I learning about Jesus? What does this passage or this verse or this text teach me about Jesus? So Matthew 1 through 4, Matthew 5 through 7, and then when you get to Matthew 8, 9, and 10, in this inaugural recording of the beginning of the ministry of the life of Christ, you have a series of three miracles. Three, and then three, and then three. Between the first and the second, you have an invitation to follow him. Between the second and the third, an invitation to follow him. And at the end, chapter 10, he's sending his disciples out to do something very important. And we have another sermon, if you will, another clear, cohesive teaching of of Christ. So, fun days. This is a good study as we get into the Lord Jesus Christ. But in our series study, we're not going to start in Matthew. We're going to start with John. Because what John does differently about Christmas is he doesn't start with Joseph and Mary. As a matter of fact, the Gospel of John is unique in a lot of ways. Matthew, Mark, and Luke had completed writing their Gospel some 30 years before John wrote. Now, John did write in Greek, the common language of the day, but John was very much schooled as a Hebrew young man, as a Jewish young man. And so his writing is in the style and in the organizational style, distinctly Hebrew. Unlike most of the New Testament writers, his accounts are very precise. John only uses 600 distinct words in his book. He uses a vocabulary of 600 words. 
Now, if you're not familiar, that's about the vocabulary of a third grader or the vocabulary of a fourth grader. Now, some of them are big words. But he uses a limited number of words. As a matter of fact, I did a little search. I manuscript my sermons. You wouldn't tell it. You wouldn't know it, but I do. I did a little search. I'm using about four times as many words as John used. And what I'm sharing with you and looking at what he shared with just 600 words. He even tells us why he's writing his gospel. He doesn't leave it up to us to figure out his aim or his purpose, but he tells us in, in John 20, now Jesus did many other signs, he's recording signs, in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, he says, I recorded this so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John didn't include Jesus' genealogy. He didn't give us even an account of Jesus' birth. There's no Bethlehem. There's no wise men. There's no flight to Egypt. There's no stories of Jesus' boyhood, which we'll study next week, or even of his baptism or of his temptation in the wilderness. He does not record Jesus' sermon on the Mount of Olives. There are no lepers here. There are no demoniacs here that need the demons cast of them. Uh, none of Jesus' parables. He focuses his attention and his writing on his one purpose. And that is to demonstrate that Jesus is God in order that you and I might believe in him and have life. John's account is rich, unique in all the New Testament. It's profound and it's powerful. It's a reality of Christmas that we don't often reflect on, but it's where we start today. And John starts his gospel earlier than any other of the gospel writers in the beginning. Now we're couching this and we've kind of got this organized in a very clear way. Another change from what I normally do. Normally I give you three points to consider as we consider any particular passage of scripture. Today we have six because they describe this one that John is presenting, this Jesus, this living God. They describe him in this passage that we're looking at this morning. And the first thing, if you're taking notes, I'd like for you to go ahead and write this down. He is the eternal one. He is the eternal one. In the beginning was the word. What is in the beginning? Where, where, where else do you see in the beginning in Scripture? Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning was the word. This word, this one, capital W, this person identified here as the word it was, was already there when everything that we know began. He is eternal before the world was made, without time. Listen to how the, the uh, uh, writer of Proverbs personifies wisdom in Proverbs chapter 8. He says, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a massive workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing in him always. That is the personification of wisdom, but what a beautiful description of the reality of the eternality of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the living, eternal, coexistent Word of God. When He made everything, the Word was there, already there. Now, it does lead us to the question, why does John start out with the word, Word? In the beginning was 
the word. And I think it's very important for us to note this. Number one, that would mean something very significant to all of his Jewish audience. In the Old Testament, that when God would invade history, when God would speak, when God would give them direction or clarity or correction, when he would give to them provision, he always invaded time with word. Throughout the Old Testament, God reveals himself by speaking. And many, many times you'll find the, the, the phrase, and the Lord spake unto them, or thus saith the word of the Lord, and the Lord said this, and so forth and so on. God is always revealing himself. He reveals himself through speaking. And so when the Jew heard the word word, they would know that this revelation comes from God. Here's the word revealed from God. When we think of the power of God, when you think of the will of God, the mind of God, the purpose of God, the design of God, the plan of God, all of this is embodied in the word of God. So to the Jew, that which came from God to reveal himself was identified as the word. But it was also important to the Greeks. Now, the Greeks were a secular society, and they were very philosophical in their approach and their understanding of humanity and reality and all that life is. And many of you have studied this far more than I have, and you may be more familiar with their approach to philosophy and thinking. But the word logos, L-O-G-O-S, the word that means word, Greek word, word, that's confusing, isn't it? Logos in the Greek is the word in English, it carries with it more than simply vocabulary. The Greeks had philosophized about the Logos. They saw the Logos as an impersonal, non-personal force that emanated from the God. Philo, a Greek philosopher, said, It is the power of creation, the tiller by which God stirs all things, the intermediary between the world and God, the priest which sets the soul before God. That's a quote he had describing what the Logos says, was this the impersonal power that emanates from whatever God there is that, that develops or shows us what reality is, even fate. So the Greek knew about the Logos and thought about it as a creative directing force. And so John, in using this word, is, is communicating in a way to communicate to the Greek that this logos that you've been thinking about and philosophizing about and searching out and wondering about, he's come. Here he is. To the Jew, the word of God, the revelation. To the Greek, wisdom, knowledge, the underlying force, the power of being, if you will. Here is he, this word. Now, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. Again, I'm going to rush through this. I will tell you, my tendency is to want to slow down on every point. We're just going to slow down on one. So buckle up. We're going to go fast. In the beginning, the word was with God. It means co-equal with. Uh, proton, protos ton theon. Face to face. Not beside lacking intimacy. Certainly not under and absolutely not behind. But co-equal with. Face to face. The word was with God. And then he expands that and says the word was God. Literally, Greek construction, God was the Word. The Word was God. Here's what I want you to understand about this Word that the Apostle John is talking about. This baby in a manger, this Jesus that we're talking about, is that all that God is, He is. All of the attributes of God are the attributes of Jesus. All that God has experienced, all that God has caused in, to come into being, all of God's purpose, all of God's will is to be found in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And how is this demonstrated? How is this verified? How did John present this to his audience? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made, created, that was made. And so whoever creates all things is God. He is the source of all that is. And he states it both positively and negatively. He created everything. And if anyone says, well, he created most things, there were other portions of creation, he says, no, everything that was made was made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. And so the first point is that Jesus is eternal God who invaded time. We see that in Philippians chapter 2. We see that in Colossians chapter 1. We see it throughout. Now, I want to tell you, most of us would readily affirm that and say, amen, go on to the next point. But I want you to know, most of the people that you talk to in the world will have a different viewpoint of Jesus. They may say he was a good man. He was a wise teacher. He established a religion. They may say he was a son of God. They may say he was a prophet of God. Maybe even the premier prophet of God. But the Apostle John and the Word of God and the reality of Christ leaves us no choice, as C.S. Lewis said, but to decide that it's one of three things. He's either a lunatic, he's a con man, or he's who he said he was. You can't mitigate this. You can't say it. You just can't. And his claim is... And we know the reality that he is God. Jesus is God, eternal God. But he's also God who is revealed. In verse 4, he picks up and says, In him, in this word, was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Listen, he says Jesus is life. In him is life. All life came from him. Everything that was made, he made. All life came from him. He is the giver of life. Because life resides in him, he is the one who gives it and who grants it. And the analogy that John uses to expose this or to explore this or to teach this is the analogy of light. He is light. It reveals the life that Jesus is. He is the light of the world that shines upon all men. He is the light that shines in darkness. Now, what is the darkness that this light shines in? Is it just confusion? Is it just misunderstanding? No, it's more than that. It is the reality of a mankind separated from God by sin. The world in darkness lay. We need, we need light. We need the light that will show us who God is and what life really is. We need light who will show us what real truth is, eternal truth, unchanging truth. We need light to show us what grace is and yet we live in darkness just a little bit later John is speaking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus John records in John chapter 3 and he says whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he is not believed in the name of the only son of God and this is the judgment the light has come into the world Christ and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light that, he may be, that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. Jesus is the eternal one, but he is also the light, the one that illuminates, the one that reveals, the one that shows. He is the 
revealed one. And then quickly, he's the promised one. We're not going to spend much time here, but then the Apostle John describes John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus, born to Elizabeth and Zechariah, who is given the task of being the last Old Testament prophet. We have an Old Testament prophet in the New Testament. His name is John. He's given a message clearly from God. He's given a task that was described in the last time God spoke to a prophet, which was at the end of the Old Testament, the last chapter in the book of Malachi. There's one like unto Elijah who will come out to prepare the way from the Lord. And here's what he says. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He was a witness. He came to bear witness about the light that all might believe in the light through his witness. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Now, John was an Old Testament prophet. You would have recognized him walking down the street. He dressed like one. He talked like one. He came out of the wilderness, and the hand of God was clearly upon him. As a matter of fact, he is described as being greater than all that had come before him. 400 years, and no prophet sent from God. And here comes John walking out of the wilderness. And the goal here was not to draw a crowd to himself to be his, own, his followers. The goal here was to simply point everyone to and be a witness to the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as God has promised. He's eternal. He's revealed in his birth, in his incarnation. He is the light. And he's the one that had been promised. But I want you to also note that he's rejected. He is the rejected one. He is the one that people denied. The Apostle John continues, the true light, this word, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came unto his own, and his own people did not receive him. Listen, he's the true light, the one who brings light to everyone. I want you to recognize something that I think is very important for us to grasp and for us to know. God has revealed himself to all mankind. He's revealed himself to creation. He's revealed himself to his recorded word. He's revealed himself through the, the incarnate Christ, the life of Christ upon the earth. He continues to reveal himself through his life in us. God is actively being light to all in the world. And how we respond to that light determines whether we become children of God. We'll get to this in just a moment. Or whether we remain in darkness, separated from Him. We know that when Christ came, there were many who knew who He was. When it says that they did not know Him, by the way, it doesn't mean they didn't know about Him. It doesn't mean that they hadn't heard of Him. It means that they did not know Him. They did not have a relationship with Him. They did not see him for who he was, how he is. They had not surrendered to him. When John speaks of, of knowing Christ or knowing God or knowing someone, he's always talking about the intimacy of a relationship. And he says they knew, they saw, they heard, they just rejected, and they turned their back on him. And so we have the eternal word of God. The eternal word of God revealed. We have him Revealed as it was promised. And then when he comes, we have him rejected. And that would be a sorry place if that's where we stop. But it's not. What's your favorite word in the New Testament? Say it out loud. But. The adversative but. B-U-T. 
Because what New Testament frequently does, and what John has done here, he's painted a picture of a bleak and dark situation, a world in darkness. God breaking through, bringing light and understanding and life, and the world rejecting him. But to as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the children of God. What, what does it mean to receive him? To as many as believe on his name. Now, let, let's, let's just start there. Believe on his name. Does that mean believe that's what his name is? No. His name encompasses all that he is. To believe that he's eternal God. To believe that he is the creator. To believe that he is light and holy and righteousness. To believe, as we'll see, that he is the perfect lamb of God whose blood was shed to, to cover, to pay for the penalties of the sins of the world. To embrace him for who he is as he reveals himself. To believe is more than just mental acknowledgement. Oh, yeah, I believe that. No, it is to entrust yourself to, it is to grasp, it is the word faith, to hold on to, to entrust yourself to this truth and to this reality. And that is receiving him. But as many as received him, he gave the power, where'd the power come from? Through their effort, through their work, through their determination? No, he gave them the power to become the children of God. What did it require? Belief in his name. But if you stop at verse 12, you've missed some of the most important truth in Scripture. We so often quote verse 12, we need to also remember verse 13. It's an important that we grasp. Uh, verse, <laughs> verse 13 says, those who become children of God who were born not of blood, that means not of their racial lineage, not because they were Jews, they didn't inherit it. This is not genealogical. This is not racial. Not of blood nor of the will of the flesh, not simply because they decided this would be a good idea and they put their name on a line, not just because they said a prayer or they signed a card, not just because of a decision that they made, even if it was an intentional good decision, not of their will, not of the will of their flesh, and not of the will of man, certainly not through the instrumentation, through the work of others in their life. There's only one way to be saved, but of God, it is only God to save. Now, it's hard, as I mentioned, for me not to pause at each one of these points, speaking of the eternality of God, speaking of how God is light and how you and I become light of the world because Jesus was the light of the world as he indwells us. It's hard not to, not to focus upon e even the, the, the prophecies and the rejection that Jesus faced. But I will tell you, I'm going to stop here at least for a moment to tell you that this is a wonderful joining together of two great truths. What do you need to be saved in verse, chapter, in verse 12? As many as believed on his name. You need faith. And yet, is this something that you do in your own strength and in your own power and by your own will? Not by your race, not by blood, not by, not by the will of the flesh, and certainly not by the instrumentation of others, but they are given life by God. God alone saves. 
God alone saves. Jesus came on a rescue mission. He came to proclaim the good news. But more, he came to be the good news. Jesus came that we might have life in place of spiritual death. Jesus came that we might no longer live in darkness, but have light, illumination, understanding, and guidance. Jesus came that we might uh, no more live in hopelessness, but instead be a hope that never fades away. Jesus came that we might no longer live in despair, but experience instead joy unspeakable and full of glory. Jesus came that we might be released from the bondage of guilt by being washed and by being cleansed and by forgiven, being forgiven and being made white as snow. Jesus came that we may no longer be separated from God by our sin, but that we may be joined to God as his children with an intimacy of a child sitting in his father lap, father's lap, calling him Abba Father. That's important. Why did he come? He came not only to reveal, he came to be. Who did he come to? He came to all who received him. To believe, that word used over a hundred times in John's gospel, to put their faith in trust. He, he gave them the right to become a new people, not of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. It didn't come to you because some human agency or human instrumentation made it possible. It's not due to your heritage or to your background or what your mom or your dad did. It's not even due to your own strong desire. It you came because of God. That's what verse 13 says. As many as received. But if you did, you didn't do it because you desired it. It wasn't because somebody desired it for you. It was because of God and God's moving and his working and his drawing and his enabling. I want you to understand that those are great truths. No one is saved apart from faith. Amen. And it is fully God who saves. Amen. Good news. When you look at the manger in John's gospel, you see something different than you see in Matthew and in Luke. You see a really staggering thought. You see the God of the universe laid in a manger. We're going to talk next week from Luke chapter 2 about Jesus as a little boy. You ever thought about that? Wouldn't you have loved to have been his little brother? You know his brothers rejected him until his crucifixion. His family thought he'd gone nuts, we have recorded in the gospel. And yet, we know at least some of his brothers, their lives were totally and completely transformed by the reality of who he was in his presence. Here's the mystery. The word became a man and did not cease to be God. He dwelt among us. He dwelt among us. That's the word that means to pitch your tent, to tabernacle among us and here comes the testimony of john the apostle and we beheld his glory the glory is of the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth now john saw his glory john was one of the disciples who was one of the fishermen that jesus called early in his ministry and said come follow me i'll make you fishers of men and he walked with jesus he talked with jesus he was there with peter he was there with his brother james he was there with the other disciples he was the one who went, one of the ones who went into Samaria to get food when Jesus encountered the woman at the well in John chapter 4. He was there when the crowd, when, they, when, when there were 5,000 people that were hungry and they had no food and Jesus fed them. He was there when the blind 
were made to see. He, was, he saw the healing miracles and, and the moving and working. He heard the testimonies, not only the public communication, but the personal communication around the campfire at night as Jesus opened his heart and opened truth, eternal truth into the minds of these people. He saw every, Jesus' every action. He saw his every reaction. He saw his every, every interaction. And John says, we beheld him and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now at this point, John is looking back and writing, and he's already been to the Mount of Transfiguration. He's already been to that place where, as Peter describes it, Jesus pulled back the veil of flesh, and they were able to see his glory on the mount. Listen, John, firsthand account of who this Jesus is, the witness that says that Jesus is God. And I love this. He's full of grace and truth. He goes on in this passage of Scripture, and he talks about how Moses brought the law, but how Jesus became, uh, was, was filled with grace and truth. The law is filled with truth, but it's not the full truth. The full truth and the full expression of grace comes in the New Testament, in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. No man knows truth except by the revelation of God, and no man knows grace but by the revelation of God. And, and John says we saw his grace and truth. Who is this person? Who is this one? In, in verse 15 and following, he closes this up and he says this is important. This eternal one, this revealed one, this promised one, this rejected one, this saving one. If you didn't write that on your outline, that's the next one. The one who was the rejected becomes the one who saves, the saving one. Paul, he describes him as the glorious one, but I love the phrase. He is the one who brings grace upon grace. And I'll just read these verses 14 through 18. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. The glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him, John the Baptist, and he cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. Even John the Baptist talked about his eternality. Verse 16 for from his fullness, Jesus' fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. There's no grace in the law. You know that, right? The law demonstrates our need for grace. No one has ever seen God, verse 18. The only God who is at the Father's hand, he has made him known. I think that's important for us to grasp as we understand this grace of God. Grace upon grace. Why would you say grace over grace or grace after grace or grace through grace or the, the doubling up of the word grace there? And I think probably one of the clearest ways to describe it that I'm familiar with is just like, have you ever been to the ocean? You like the beach? You don't like the beach? I love the beach. When you go, you're going to love it. I love the beach. I love it when the waves come rolling in. I like the sound. Of course, I like the heat and the sand and the salt and the bugs and the birds. But everything there is to know about the beach, I like. But picture the waves coming in, wave after wave after wave after wave. When John says, he comes bringing, we have from him, from his fullness, grace upon grace. He's saying, here's a wave of grace that opens your eyes to truth that you had not known before. And there's illumination and understanding. And all of a sudden, you begin to see God and see yourself as if you'd never seen yourself before. 
Here's a wave of grace that gives you the gospel, the glorious hope of the Lord Jesus Christ that proclaims His grace displayed on the cross, a blood-red grace, if you will, that covers and washes away your sin. Here's a grace that when you're weak will hold you up and will be your strength. Here's a grace that when you're tempted gives you the power to overcome that temptation and live in holiness. Here is a grace that will train your mind and train your heart in truth and will train your heart in faith and a deepening love in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a grace that was, but it is also a grace that is. And it is a grace that will again be tomorrow and the next day and the next day. The grace of God that we need is without end. It flows from the completeness of a holy God who overflows with love for us and thus sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might know Him, that we might see Him, that we might embrace him. What happened at the incarnation? The invisible God became visible. What happened at the incarnation? The untouchable God became embraceable. What happened at the incarnation? God became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And from this fullness, we have received grace upon grace. Do you know him? Do you know him? Too many times we think of Christianity as task to be done, a group to identify with simply, or a section or series of beliefs to hold on to. Christianity is Christ and knowing Him. If you don't know Him, I pray that both today and as we go through this study, you will begin to see that the light of the world which shines upon men will increasingly shine upon you. And that you will put your faith and your trust in Him. Many of us here already know Him. Aren't you glad? Jesus is my friend. He is my Lord and he is my Savior. He is, in some ways, theologically, my brother. He is certainly my God. He is my Savior. Wouldn't you like to know him better? Some of that comes through just time. But I will tell you, you can spend a lot of time with somebody. If you don't put in much effort, you don't get to know him much better. And so we get to put in the effort and say, Lord, open my eyes that I may see. Open my ears that I may hear. Take my time. I'll schedule time with you in your word and in prayer. I'm afraid too many of us live like spiritual docetics, and you, don't, you can throw the word away. But I'm afraid too many of us live like uh, practical atheists. We go through life doing the best we can with no meaningful relational connection to the living God who's already saved us. My prayer for us is that we will echo the, the, the prayer of an ancient saint who said, It is my desire to know thee more clearly, or see thee more clearly, follow thee more nearly, day by day. Well, the day by day was part of a song, but that we might know him more. 
Father, I pray that as we go through this study and certainly as we've spent time just looking at these claims today, that we'll recognize that Jesus is eternal God revealed. That Jesus is eternal God who when he was revealed as promised was rejected by many. And may there be no one here that rejects the claims and the actions and the life of Christ as you really are, as you really were. Because, Father, as many as received him, you gave the power to become the sons of God, the children of God. And receiving means entrusting our life to you, putting our faith in you, believing upon you, in your name, all that you are, all that you claim, all that you did, all that you've accomplished through your life and through your death and through your resurrection, through your ascensions, through the return that is coming. Father, we believe that we put our faith and our trust in you. We become your children. And yet, Father, we know that that is certainly not by the will of the flesh nor of man. But we know that it is by the will of God. And so I pray, Father, our prayer is that you will move and work in the hearts and lives of those who need to know you. For those of us who know you, may we see you more. May we learn more. May we deepen our intimacy, our walk, and our relationship with more. May we experience, not reject, not turn from, not deny the reality of, but may we live in the daily experience of grace upon grace upon grace. In your name I pray. Amen.